to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I'm joined through the magic of the internet with a very special guest today. I'm so excited. Uh, we have Ben McCooch, who is a award-winning national security reporter with Vice News, in, now in New York City, formerly in Toronto, and he also formerly worked with the Canadian Press. I'm sure most of the people listening today have heard his reporting on terrorism, cybersecurity, espionage, and of course, far right extremism, which is something I want to focus on today. And bizarrely, and maybe we can do a separate episode about this, you're, you're our first guest to actually have a Supreme Court case about you. <laughs> because uh, the RCMP tried to get your records. Um, and we actually talked about that on, on the podcast. Uh, you can go back and listen to it. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Great. Um, so I guess one of the things I want to focus on, as I said in the introduction, is far-right extremism. And you and Mac Lamoureux, I hope I'm, I'm saying that right, um, you know, you've been covering the far-right for really a good part of the last decade, you were certainly one of the first reporters in my mind to to kind of focus this on. And uh, you were the first really reporters to kind of break the story of the base, which, you know, takes its name from Al Qaeda, but in wants to use it for far right nationalism. So I guess my first question to you is how did you even notice this? And how did you get interested in this? Because you've been previously covering uh, the Islamic State. Honestly, it was exactly that experience that, that helped me understand sort of the trends of what was going on. Because if I go back to 2014, 2013, and actually, I would go back to 2013 when I was with Canadian Press. I actually was sort of the lowest of the rung reporter there in the Parliamentary Bureau in Ottawa. And I, I truly and utterly couldn't stand covering federal politics. And I really just I wanted to I can't imagine why that is, but sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to be something I'll ever go back to either. Uh, I don't think I don't think I'm 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 built for the sort of the blood sport of of political reporting, but um, you prefer the, the you prefer the kinder, gentler world of of terrorism. Yes, yes, exactly. At least I know who yeah. I'm speaking to. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Um. So so I I, I saw in 2013 I became really fascinated with obviously the the war in Syria and I, I developed some sources inside of Syria, and this is sort of the the period in which the the Free Syrian Army was. Was, was something still. And then, you know, Ukraine started happening in terms of the protests. And you know, these sorts of things were really, were really interesting to me. And it, and it also was, it had to do a lot with the millennial generation being enraged and upset and wanting to sort of change the established order. And when it came to Syria, I started seeing some of these individuals, young men and young men my age, who were going from, you know, Canada, United States, uh, Great Britain, Belgium, France, going over to Iraq and Syria and fighting for sort of this, this group. And nobody was really saying at first what it was. And they were then posting about it on, on Twitter and on Instagram and on things like ask.fm, which was sort of these, this, this anonymous question and answer site that really doesn't have much uh, relevance anymore. But at the time, jihadists from Canada, including Farrah Sheridan, who I was in touch with, uh, were posting on it and were talking about how to come and commit hijra. He was the Canadian who uh, famously burned his passport in a video and, yes. um, um, you know, basically denounced Canada and went over and it was, it was all over the news at the time. And so, I'm sorry, so you got in touch with him through Ask FM? I originally noticed him on Ask FM, okay. uh, which is funny. And then I, I was sort of, I became embedded with that entire community of online jihadists. And this included, you know, understanding what their memes were, what their hashtags were, what their, what their parlance was, 
And then they started connecting stuff to Kick Messenger app. They started saying their usernames on whatever site they were on. And so I just downloaded Kick and I started messaging with these people. And lo and behold, I became kind of embedded in the entire community, which was to say, I understood what they were saying, why they were angry. You know, I did not, I didn't agree with anything they were doing, but I saw like this young, vibrant group of people who were angry and actually going over and joining a terrorist group, which sort of upended exactly what I thought terrorism was at the time. So, you know, we were still in the age of Al Qaeda and the idea that, you know, bin Laden, when he was threatening America, he had to go on CNN or have a, have a mic cord and a, and a camo jacket and say a bunch of things in this sort of boring tone and then, and then go off camera. Suddenly you had these guys posting about their dinners and their, their battles on Instagram. And it was very, you know, I realized then it was like this new age of terrorism that was about to, about to happen. So obviously fast forward into 2014 and the rise of ISIS and the storming of Mosul. And, and then of course the establishment of Raqqa and, and then the execution videos and just sort of this, this new aesthetic of terrorism, which was, you know, slick videos, slick propaganda, covert clandestine networks of people who, who were all sort of driven by this millennial rage uh, is what I like to call it. And by about 2015, 2016, you start seeing some of these sort of street groups develop in, in Canada in reaction and in the United States and Great Britain and Europe in reaction to ISIS and some of the, the public attacks that they were undertaking. And also the migrant crisis, which started driving nativism. And you saw these street, street gangs like the soldiers of Odin sort of appear. So to me, I started seeing this kind of okay, there's, there's an anger there. There's sort of this white nationalist anger. At this point, it's, it hasn't been mainstreamed, but it's, it's becoming something. And basically from that, I started seeing on, on Twitter, these groups and accounts started kicking up and they started to look a lot like 2013 and these young, angry men who started posting about their rage and they had their own their own, uh, how do I put it, their own uh, canon of, of books that they refer to, like the Turner Diaries, Siege, something called right, Zero This is Tolerance. all very pessimistic. Fic- it's dystopian fiction that dystopian fiction. highlights far-right themes. It does, but also it, it, it 100% sort of mimics much of the same jihadist literature that we have uh, that, that inspired many of the young men to go over there, like Anwar al-Awlaki and some of the, the sermons that he had. He did Bin Laden's sermons in English, and it, it attracted some of these young men. And at that point, I, I started noticing Iron March, uh, which was this massive site that was so important to the far-right movement. And on it, the way that these guys were talking was exactly the same way that these ISIS guys were, would speak to one another in terms of their desires to create attacks, their, their worldview mixed in with sort of casual conversations about their lives. And you started seeing this group cohesion, you started seeing this, this patented worldview, and sooner or later you started seeing groups being formed. And you know, Iron March was the basis for Adam Waffen Division. That's where it all started. And so it's so interesting the, you're seeing this parallel between the two different movements, even though you know, they, they both kind of, uh, you know, this kind of grievance-fueled rage, mm-hmm. um, even if it's, you know, for, for two different causes, yet seems very, very similar in, in kind of an abstract way. Absolutely. I mean, they seemed almost perfectly identical to me in terms of what they were asking. There was, you know, what I noticed across both those spectrums is that it's all about these young, angry men 
who believe that society has done them wrong and that society that they've now grown into wasn't the one that they were raised for. And that was something that I noticed quite palpably. And especially within the same kind of ecosystems, these two ecosystems, you saw, you know, individuals who some of them were sociopaths, most of them were pretty regular and had gone extreme. And I thought to myself, I mean, this is something that's, that's burgeoning. This is going to be an issue. This is going to be a problem. And then, of course, we see the rise of Trump. And I thought to myself, this is a perfect storm. And I, I, I was right there at the beginning of it uh, when Adam's Waffen division formed. And then from there, that was really the first group that started the whole thing and was sort of the seed that, that built into what we have now, which ended up, I, I think, being a group like the base, which was highly organized with many veterans and they were planning things and they were a real bonafide terror network that believed in this sort of race war, white nationalist insurgency. And I think, I also think, you know, one couldn't have happened without the other. I think ISIS really inspired these groups uh, and gave them something to be angry about, but also showed them that a young generation can get furious and can take up weapons and can take it out against the system. And that's something both groups like to use is this rage against the system. So it's, I mean, so when you're in these forums, are you seeing the fact that, okay, yes, they, are, they don't want the, the supposed or so-called Islamization of the West, but mm-hmm. at the same time, they kind of admire the tactics. In September 2019, I wrote an article about this, but many of the neo-Nazi terror groups and these sort of siege-pilled Adam Waffen division types and the base types, they admire bin Laden because bin Laden was sort of the ultimate the ultimate boogeyman to the United States and also created something, created a militant system that worked. And I think, you know, you see bin Laden in some of their, their propaganda, strangely. Uh, and as much as they don't, they don't like bin Laden racially and they don't like Al Qaeda or ISIS racially, they admire what they did. And the boring and going back and forth is just, it, it's the list goes on. So I don't want you to trash your other colleagues, of course, but like, why do you think people weren't noticing this in, in 26, uh, you know, 2014, 15, 16? Because I think, you know, I think partially because I think, for example, Western, for lack of a better term, society is much more, I mean, we, we don't like to look at the white, at the problems with whiteness, at the problems with, with, uh, with white nationalism. We tend to think that, I think, I mean, if I could speak generally, that terrorism is predominantly the, you know, the occupation of people from the Middle East. And that's right. not It's true. a foreign thing that comes to North America and not something that is generated within North America. Exactly. And I think I looked at it, especially I think I was in, I think I was in the right generation. You know, I lived through the recession and I understood the, the I, mean, I was very fortunate. I had jobs and, you know, I, I got my career off the ground during the recession and after. But at the same time, I knew a lot of people who were upset and angry at it. Now, most people don't go and join j- jihadist groups or join, you know, a white nationalist terrorist group. But some of that rage starts getting channeled somewhere. And I started seeing it, you know, cause, because these, these, these white guys were no different from the ISIS guys. They were angry too and they needed a, a cause and they were needed a radical cause and they, they gravitated towards this really horrific white nationalist neo-Nazi form of doing it. And I think, I think a lot of older reporters, I remember having pushback from older reporters 
which will go unnamed, telling me like, do you really think this is something? I think you're overestimating this. That's not what the RCMP says. That's not what the FBI says. And I kept going back to them like, no, this is a thing. This is a real thing. This is a, in fact, I would go so far as to say this is a problem. And we're not looking at how big of a problem this is going to be. And, you know, ultimately I was right. But I think a lot of it has to do with we don't like to look in some of these spaces because we don't, we, it's almost like we can't believe it. And I was, I was willing to believe that that was a problem. Okay, so, you know, you've identified the problem and frankly, you've done a great job of it. And my research is highly dependent on your, on your reporting. So thank you. Um, but I was wondering, could you maybe talk about some of the trends that you think are the most significant in 2020? Um, one of the things I've noticed you've, you've been writing about that's so interesting is the transnational links between <laughs> these different kind of far right neo-Nazi groups. Well, I think, um, well, for one, for the trends in 2020, to address that first and foremost, I think if you're seeing the FBI arrests, you're seeing what is going on. I mean, there's a slew of arrests today of Adam Waffen Division members. There was a slew of arrests of- It was in Seattle, members. correct? Two in Seattle and two in Virginia, the former leader, oh, uh, wow. John Cameron Denton, uh, who was, his alias was rape, and he was sort of one of the most radical ones. And they got him on swatting charges. But the FBI is very, very, very serious. My own sources say that, you can look it into the news and see how, how serious they're taking this because they're worried about 2020 because the election mm. in 2020 is going to be like, if I was a counterterrorism uh, law enforcement official, I would be looking at that and, and I'd be worried because this election already has the potential of being extremely polarizing, fiery to say the least. And I think all those things, I mean, and displacing as well, I think from either side, and those things, I think, drive the potential for violence. And, you know, the base right now, they've been kind of, I'd say they've been nuked a little bit, but, you know, they were, their plans were for 2020. They, they were thinking the boogaloo, which is sort of like the, the insurgency, would begin around the 2020 election. Because either you're going to see something, uh, either a Donald Trump presidency that refuses to pass power peaceably, or a Donald Trump presidency that empowers them to then go after the state. So I think, you know, that, that first and foremost is a real issue. It's something we're going to keep looking at. And I think the threat of lone wolf terrorism or the threat of smaller, smaller cell white nationalists that are more off grid, two to three people like McVeigh, uh, who was famously the, or infamously, the Oklahoma City bomber and a former, a former infantryman who killed what? I think plus 160 people in that bombing. Yeah, I think with, stuff like that. That's, that's um, terrifying. That's <laughs> It's terrifying. Um, two, I think, and this is something that's been happening now since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, which I've covered uh, very closely in the, last, in the last six years. I've been over there covering, from, covering the war from front lines. I've covered it from multiple cities. Uh, but there, there is a network, a bona fide network, Nazi far-right foreign fighters that are going there fighting for militias and for groups like the right sector and the Azov Battalion. And they're getting weapons training, they're getting war training, they're getting war experience, and they're, they're professionalizing the way that they operate. And they're coming back, and they're coming back to North America or Europe with, with you know, those exact skill sets and trade crafts uh, to then sort of seed their white nationalist movements. And Stephanie, I know you're an expert on this. What does that sound like? <laughs> um, it sounds like that thing we've been worried about with regards to Syria for quite some time. Exactly. And it's just sort of, it's, it's completely going against the trend. I think the FBI 
from what I've what I've heard is only just realizing this is a problem. I think Canada, I think Canada has no idea of this problem because we can get into that after. But you know, this is a real issue. And you know, I know Ali Sufan, who famously tracked Bin Laden. He's very interested in this and has talked to me about it. This is a real problem. You don't want people going back fighting for white nationalist organizations in a war and coming back with that trigger finger, knowing how to operate. And but also having that credibility of having been in a war zone. Exactly. Right. I mean, journalists get credibility being in war zones. <laughs> I can only imagine <laughs> not be. Um, just, just quickly, uh, just for our, the, our audience who may not know, when people say that, you know, uh, neo-Nazis in Ukraine, can you, can you explain who these people are? Which ones? The foreign fighters or the organizations? No, the organization. Right. So we have, we have um, there's a few groups. One sort of catch-all group is called the Right Sector. And they're this anarchist far-right neo-Nazi organization that came out of the Maidan protests. And actually, they, 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 they came out of soccer hooliganism, generally. And in 2014, when the military in Ukraine literally had, I think, something like seven to 8,000 active duty soldiers who could actually fight in a war, the government made a call for volunteers to go to the front because they needed to sort of stem this, this Russian invasion in Donbass and give it some time to train up some citizen soldiers to become real soldiers and then take over the war in the East. And what ended up happening was groups like the right sector didn't go away. When the Ukrainian army came and took it over, they refused to give up their weapons. And the Ukrainian military said to themselves, look, we don't want another paramilitary problem. We're just going to let them stay there. We don't need guns being turned on us while we're trying to fight Russia. Right. And another larger group than right sector called Azov Battalion, again, they came out of the neo-Nazi soccer hooligan scene. They became a larger and even more organized paramilitary organization. And they were so powerful, the government was forced to actually consume them into the regular military and they became part of the National Guard. And they have an entire position in Mariupol, which is, you know, south of uh, Donbass. And these groups, both of them, openly, openly recruit foreign fighters. And both groups openly have serious links to neo-Nazi organizations like The Base, like Adam Waffen Division. And I, I identified a member of, of The Base who went over to fight for right sector in Ukraine and, you know, or alleged to have gone over to fight for right sector. And that to me was just sort of this, this confirmation of just how much the parallels between ISIS and Al Qaeda and these groups has come to pass and sort of the unity that, that it creates. Because, you know, ISIS and Al Qaeda, they really benefited, I mean, especially ISIS, they benefited off of the ISIS, or, or they benefited off of the Syrian front and the war that happened there because they created a front, you know, an, an international front for people to go to, to create links and to create, you know, and strengthen the movement, just like Afghanistan was in the 80s for the Mujahideen and what ended up being Al Qaeda. And I'm seeing that now with Ukraine. So, okay, so those are uh, two terrifying trends. The idea of, um, firstly, the, the election kind of spurring um, either lone actor or more organized uh, terrorist attacks within the United States. And then secondly, the idea of uh, neo-Nazi foreign fighters getting trained in Ukraine and coming back uh, in order to perhaps even conduct those attacks. And the base, like I, I, the base actually discussed this 
This is something the bass was interested in doing. Norman Spear, who was the leader of the bass and was outed as uh, Ronaldo Nazaro, discussed this, you know, that Ukraine could be the front. It could be a place that we could, we could feed we could feed people and they could come back and teach us things. And I think that this is something that is that if I were law enforcement or intelligence, I'd be very, very, very interested in. Right. So, I mean, you've mentioned a number of groups in this, in this podcast, you've talked about like Adam Waffen and talked about the base. Um, you know, of course there's also like three percenters, all these different kinds of groups. Um, now, in the past, when, you know, when I was an analyst and we looked at these groups, you know, the, the consensus was they were very fractious. They, they engaged in public order threats, uh, so like, like fighting, um, hate crimes, short of terrorism. Um, they, they tended to fall apart. They, they did a lot of infighting amongst themselves. They couldn't really get themselves organized in the same kind of way that Islamist groups have. So I'm wondering if, um, you know, given uh, the trends that you're talking about, whether it's kind of online forums or, um, you know, uh, actually getting foreign fighter training or even just this kind of transnational networks, do you think this is changing the nature of the threat of these groups? Uh, completely. I think, uh, I mean, I, think... I, I assume the answer was going to be yes, but I mean, yeah, yeah, I, why. yeah, they're, it completely changes the game. I think, I think if I use the example of the base, which I covered from the beginning to its demise, I mean, we'll see if it stays that way. But, you know, at first, this was a bunch of a bunch of individuals who were veterans who got online into an encrypted network and they discussed wanted to getting training together in secret paramilitary groups and then carry out attacks. And they did all those things and they very nearly did the last part, but they got thwarted by the FBI at the last second. And to see that this group went from sort of this fractious group of online neo-Nazi, far-right, alt-right, whatever you want to call them, to an actual group that discussed in earnest carrying out attacks and training for them, then almost doing it. It changes just a bunch of guys who do like play militia on the, on the weekends or some neo-Nazi skinheads who like punch some people up at a rally or I don't know, like spray paint some, some awful, awful things on a synagogue. I mean, all those things are not good, but the, the earlier thing is the thing that sort of borders into terrorism and borders right, into- it's an armed attack. It's, and, you know, and borders yeah. into, and I think, you, you know, you're, you, you, were in, you were in the IC, you understand this. There's a professionalization to one and an unprofessionalization to the other. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, um, one of the things that, that, that does terrify me is that, you know, there may be a fractiousness to these groups still today, but overall there are these larger networks that are perpetuating these mm -hmm. narratives, the grievance narratives that you kind of talked about at the beginning of the podcast that, you know, might tend to give these, you know, different factions more life than if, um, you know, these, these transnational networks weren't there in the first place. Well, exactly. And I think if we're, if we also look at Ukraine, the other thing Ukraine does that I've, I've noticed in my reporting and I've seen many of these individuals actually say so much as this, they look at it as an example. They see Ukraine and they go, it's possible to have a neo-Nazi paradise. It's possible to have an, a paramilitary neo-Nazi group inside of Europe with geopolitical power and an area that it controls. You know? You look and at this Azov, is what they're aspiring to. This is what they're aspiring to. This is what they want. This is what... So the base wants this is what they want a real insurgency what they want a paramilitary organization that can 
have a, a chain of command, can have weapons, and has to have a seat at the table. Just for our audience, like who, you know, I've probably heard all these groups being named quickly. What is the difference between things like Adam Waffen, as you said, you know, you mentioned the base, the rise and fall of the base, but maybe not forever. Like what, what, what it kind of differentiates these groups? Is it just personalities? Are there differences in goals? Pretty much. So they, they're all united by one thing. It's James Mason's Siege, which is this 80s newsletter slash novel, novel that is written by James Mason, uh, who's this neo-Nazi author, activist. And it, it's basically a white, a white nationalist, white power insurgency Bible. So they're all kind of driven by this thing. They'll all talk about being siege-pilled and, and things like that. Uh, so that, that unites them. But I would say, you know, we've all read like Looming Tower, see the sort of the, the rise of the jihadis and like what's the difference between Islamic Front and Al-Qaeda? Like not much, you know? Right. A lot of the groups, they, they share a lot in common. I would say the difference between Adam Waffen and the base is that Adam Waffen was led by younger, younger people who didn't have military training. And then the base comes along and it's, it's, it's ran by a guy named Norman Spear or Elisa's alias. And he is a little older, military veteran, and creates sort of a professional structure with an ideology and an organization to it that it's, is able to hone in on the rage, manipulate the rage, get followers, and then start to, you know, create operations and wield that power and that rage in an organized way while also staying covert. I mean, ultimately they didn't, but staying covert I mean as well. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, the reporting about him, he actually bought territory for people to train on. Uh, but he himself, I believe, is based, it, it was discovered that he was based in Russia. Yeah, which is something that was known by all the base members for, for years. I remember seeing them discuss it as early as summer 2018. Right. Um, so one of, you know, some of your other really interesting reporting has come around uh, Patrick Matthews who was affiliated with this. Now, he was someone who, he was a Canadian uh, reservist in, our, uh, our, uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, and he basically was outed as someone in, um, you know, involved in these groups, I believe by the Winnipeg Free Press. And then he managed to you know, basically leave Canada and traveled to the United States. And what's interesting about him, well, there's so much that's interesting about that story, but um, one of the things that I have found and, and, you know, that you guys have been covering in your reporting is that, you know, he's someone who had some military training, uh, was clearly someone enamored with the kind of ideologies that you're talking about. Um, but in some ways, he was also uh, not particularly clever. He seems to have been actively despised by many of the people he was hanging out with. Um, and, um, you know, not exactly... <laughs> to my mind, the peak of the Aryan race, perhaps, uh, as a human specimen. So, I mean, I'm I think of that a lot when I'm covering these people. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of strange. I mean, like, you know, in some ways, these people are extremely dangerous. And in some ways, they're also a bit of a goofball. And, you know, so that's, and I actually, and, you know, and that's not unique to far-right nationalism. I, I kind of felt this way when I was looking at a lot of um, the Canadian foreign fighters as well. A lot of them, you know, were clearly very dangerous, but also were sometimes a little bit goofball-y. So, you know, how should we be thinking about this? The fact that these guys are, you know, committed to this dangerous cause, have some capability, but in other ways, they're also, um, you know, the Patrick Matthews story is, is kind of interesting in the sense that, you know, this is someone who was also um, 
I'm going to use the word uh, a bit of a doofus. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, uh, but it takes all types, right? I think you, you nailed it already. There's a lot of ISIS guys that were, that were really smart and scary. I always say there's a big difference between Farah Muhammad Sheridan and Muhammad Ali. I remember when I, when I messaged with either of them, Farah Sheridan seemed kind of a bit aloof, kind of funny, moderately stupid in some ways, you know, but I also had a charisma to him that I think I understood why he was a recruiter, why he was good at social media. Right. But he never scared me. Then Muhammad Ali, who I spoke to, is from Mississauga, who's still, I believe, in SDF control right now in Kurdistan. I remember talking to him and, and knowing where he was and what he was doing, thinking to myself, this person scares me. This person's smart. This person knows what they're doing. And other ISIS fighters, I felt the same way. And then some of them, I felt that they were kind of dumb. You know, and I, I, I think the problem is you can't, you can't eliminate the threat because one of them is not the smartest. Because you look at, you know, the command structure and the people that were in the base, there were some really smart people in the base. There were some people that, you know, as a journalist and as somebody who reports on this, wouldn't scare me so much. They weren't the smartest people of all time. But there were quite a few that were. And, you know, in the same way that I've talked to soldiers who've served in Afghanistan or in Iraq and they were combat captains and they, were, they had their troops, you know, most of them will tell you that not all their troops are the smartest, but some of them were, and some of them were effective. And the smart, the ones who weren't so smart were also effective. <laughs> so, I mean, terrorism doesn't, doesn't need people who are mechanical engineers to be, to be some of the foot soldiers, you know? So it takes a village. It takes a village to, uh, to build a, to a burn terror. a village. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, ben, I'm, I'm very cognizant that I'm taking up a lot of your time and you're very busy. I guess um, maybe one of the last questions I have for you is um, you are now based in New York City, but you're also familiar with the Canadian environment. And I'm wondering what differences you're noticing in the two environments, but also in the way that perhaps law enforcement is uh, dealing with this problem that you are talking about. I would say to answer the second question first, you know, law enforcement in the US, specifically the FBI, I don't deal very often with local police forces or even city police forces, but the FBI, my feelings with them so far, and I've had to deal with them quite a bit, is they're very professional and they know what they're doing. They're in, they are investigators. They look at a problem and they deploy resources at it and they have smart people who are going after the problem. And I think with white nationalism and white, white nationalist terrorism, I think they were a little late to the game, but I knew there was a turning point right around the Pittsburgh shooting in fall of 2018 when I think institutionally they started realizing this is a serious problem. And I know for a fact they started tackling it with real resources, real agents, you know, the base. They sent an undercover agent into the base who infiltrated it and took it down. And, you know, that takes understanding of what the problem is and understanding of the issue and the movement. And they did it. And I think that they're, they're on top of sort of the, the, uh, the burgeoning threats that are facing America and facing national security or, and facing, you know, the country. So I think the difference between the RCMP and the FBI, if, it, if it's, you know, my opinion, the FBI gets, I think the recruits they get are, are clearly a, a, of a higher caliber as investigators go especially being able to forecast these issues. I think there's a problem right now with the RCMP and how they combat terrorism. And I think they're not always getting the most specialized professional people who 
can spot these problems and then also are able to infiltrate it. Because, you know, I look at this and I think to myself, Mac Lamoureux and I have quadrupled the sources in this total movement, both globally and in Canada, than I think the, the RCMP has. And I think that's a real issue. When you look at something like Patrick Matthews, they weren't really able to, to stop him in some way. He had to, he escaped to the United States, but he wasn't charged with anything. He was just a missing person for a while. And I think that, you know, there are others in the base that were Canadian. And I, 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 I'm quite certain that they have no idea that that's that to be a real problem for them or something that happened. And I think, you know, as a Canadian, although I'm, I'm in the U.S. now, I would want my national policing agency to sort of see threats emerge and thwart them. Because as I said, in 2013, 2014, they didn't have that. I, I knew way more than they did. And then they forced me to go to court with them to protect what I, what I had found in order to defend press freedom and, and press, press rights in, in Canada. And I think, I, I'm not sure how much has changed. I mean, one of the things that you, um, you, you mentioned the fact that the FBI, they seem to have terrorism specialist training and, and terrorism career paths. That's not something that exists in Canada. No, it's not. And that's a real issue. We're, we're a very sophisticated country with, you know, uh, a complicated, complex society that needs to be determined and analyzed by professionals when it comes to law enforcement and terrorism. Like it, it's, I, I've said this before in the past and I'll say it again. Like it's, it's pretty sad if some 26 year old guy from Ottawa who doesn't, who had not been trained in law enforcement could infiltrate an entire Al Qaeda ISIS network and the federal policing agency wasn't able to do that and then forced that person to give up the information. <laughs> like, it, I think that's like a kind of a good example of what, what, what some of the of things are. not being run as smoothly as perhaps they could be. Yes. I think to be, to be generous. Right. Yeah. And in terms of the environment, um, do you think the situation in the United States is worse than Canada or are we just kind of living in some kind of ignorance in Canada that this is a real problem that's going to, uh, potentially, if it manifests badly in the United States during the election, could also manifest here. Well, Canada is a country of, what, 30 plus million people. And there were members inside of the base that were in Canada, active members who were doing things. And in the United States, there was more because the United States is a country of 300 plus million people. I think there's a difference in the, in the atmosphere in that in the United States, you really can't have an arsenal. <laughs> and you can, you can have tons of land and, you know, the law enforcement isn't always as empowered. And in Canada, you know, we can have guns, but we can't have guns the same way. And I think that does make a difference, but I think there's a serious problem going on in Canada. I think if you look at the last election and some of the rhetoric that came out of it, the continued rhetoric that's come out of it, and seeing some of the things that have gone on recently in Canadian politics that I'm watching from abroad, and it has all of the, you know, all the same signs that the United States had during that 2016 election, and following. And I think, you know, when you look at some of the movements that have come out of Canada recently, there's real reason to care. And there's real reason to, to take notice of the white nationalist problem. And, you know, as I said, there are several Canadians I've seen involved with these different groups. Mac and I both outed a member of Adam Waffen Division who was in Nova Scotia, who had been a reservist in the CAF. We also knew there was another guy who was in Ottawa, who was part of Adam Waffen Division, who was their chief propagandist. So this is 
you know, these, these people exist in Canada as well. Well, um, I think this is going to be one of our more scary podcasts and that's some, saying something, frankly. Um, but I honestly can't thank you enough for coming on and uh, sharing your thoughts about the reporting that you've been doing and the stories you've been covering. I can, again, I can speak for myself and I've already said this once, your reporting has just been so important to my own research and the research of others who are trying to understand uh, the threat of far-right extremism in Canada. Um, ben, thank you so much for coming on and, and speaking with us today. Thanks for having me.